the case of the missing money is not an Arthur Conan Doyle short story. Instead, it's a 1976 essay by well-known economist Stephen Goldfeld, who noticed that there wasn't enough money to justify the high level of economic activity at that time. Goldfeld explained that money was traditionally a simple function of real gross national product and the interest rates on savings and time deposits at commercial banks and on commercial paper. But that formula was suddenly producing whopping, unprecedented, quite unacceptable, and conspicuous errors that stood out like a sore thumb. The clue to the mystery, which he was not able to solve at the time, was that the formula for currency was on target, but the one for checking accounts was unreliable. The monetary format under the auspices of public institutions, cash and coin, was fine. But the monetary format that was the domain of private banks, deposit accounts, was way short. But the money wasn't missing from the economy. Money, as traditionally understood and defined by economists, that money was missing. But the market had broadened the definition in the 60s and 70s by turning capital market securities into near money, among many other evolutions. This suited banks because while they couldn't print and mint official government money, they could print and mint ledger money. Just under a half century later, the roles are reversed. A modern day Goldfeld would note that official monetary formats like bank reserves are being created at a whopping, unprecedented, quite unacceptable, and conspicuous pace that stands out like a sore thumb. But because the vastly more valuable private bank ledger balances are way short, our global economy suffers for it. In this 37th episode of Making Sense, Jeff Snyder writes and solves three mysteries. Japan, the case of the missing inflation. Europe, the case of the missing economy. And Treasury Bills, the case of the missing money? How might a national economy be faring if there was no corona? In other words, if there were no COVIDs, pandemica, gremlins throwing sand into the economic gears, how would an economy be faring in present circumstances? Would the engine be running? Believe it or not, there is such a country, and perhaps we can learn from it. That country is Japan. My name is Emil Kalinowski. This is Making Sense, or Eurodollar University production. I am joined by the esteemed Eurodollar master, Jeff Snyder, head of global research for Alhambra Investments. Jeff, Thanksgiving success? Thanksgiving is always a success because there's so much that's good about it. And there's really, you know, as, as much as we get into the doom and gloom and the bad side of the monetary system and the economy and all that stuff, there's still quite a lot we can be thankful for, including as we talked about last week, you know, the vaccine, an end to the COVID pandemic that has now become, you know, that's now visible and in sight. So there are things to be thankful for, and yet still a lot of work to be done. A lot of work to be done might be the conclusion of this episode. The article that we're going to be referencing, for those of you that want to follow along, it was posted on November 20th at the Alhambra Investments blog post. The title you want to search is Get your pencils out. QQE to the moon, deflation returns to Japan anyway. Jeff, so the 29th of January, 2016, the Bank of Japan announced that it would implement negative interest rates. Let me read a little quote here. At the monetary policy meeting held today, the policy board of the Bank of Japan decided to introduce quantitative and qualitative monetary easing with a negative interest rate in order to achieve the price stability target of 2% at the earliest possible time. The Financial Times that same day wrote that this was, quote, stunning analysts, but what the heck, sparking a surge in equity and bond markets. The newspaper noted a response, all of this was in response to mounting worries about the outlook in China and the risks of a global slowdown. So just setting the scene, 
early January 2016, negative interest rates. You start your article about five months later, like midsummer. What was happening then in Japan? Well, for one thing, the uh, response in markets, stocks and bond markets, lasted all of one day. Negative interest rates for the Bank of Japan was an utter and complete embarrassment. It did absolutely nothing. It did, you know, it, yes, the global economy was slowing down. The Bank of Japan, already, already um, more than two years into QQE, still was nowhere near its inflation nor economic goals, and so. They, they they decided well we'll do a negative interest rates because that's the next logical step that didn't that fell flat on its face that didn't do much of anything for Japan and so by September July uh, late summer August and into September they decided we got to do something else we got to get this inflation stuff going because inflation is the the, uh, the signal and the uh, the um, corroboration that economic growth is actually taking place that we want to see full employment things moving. You know, the monetary system contributing positively to the economic processes that we call recovery. And so, but if, you, if you're a central bank that doesn't actually intervene in a monetary system, how can, you, how can you get yourself involved into those processes? And what most of uh, modern economics has done is decided, well, we, we'll just ignore the monetary system itself and we'll instead just signal to people and businesses and consumers and whatever, financial participants, what we want them to do, and they'll do the stuff for us, and they'll create the inflation. So we signal to them, they act, the inflation, is, uh, the inflation and growth is what follows. And so, you know, negative interest rates. Negative interest rates are more of a signal than anything else. When that didn't work, they decided, well, we'll do something called overshooting, which said that, okay, we're going to let – what we know inflation's coming, but we're, not only do we know inflation's coming, we're not going to interrupt it. We're going to let it get hot. We're going to let it go higher than 2% and stay above 2% for a prolonged period of time. So in terms of signaling and inflation expectations, this was supposed to be the most powerful thing the central bankers had come up in Japan had come up with yet. That's right. Earlier you said central bankers don't do money. And many of our new guests and listeners may say, well, how can that be? Well, and we've talked about it in previous shows. In the 70s and 80s, the control of money supply slipped away clearly. Obviously, it was slipping away earlier, but it was slipped away completely beyond their control. And they hoped to affect money supply by affecting those that were creating it, which, as you said, were the private financial institutions. Okay. So, by the way, that, that uh, decision, you remember, the negative interest rate decision was five to four. So it was very contentious. You said it was a total disaster, and at least four members didn't even want to do it. Let's, so, let's say, okay, you, they said, the Bank of Japan, this negative interest rate thing's not working. Maybe what we can do is expand the monetary base. And if you stopped people in the street, Jeff, and you asked them, expand the monetary base, they would say, yeah, cash, checks, coins, that's the monetary base. But that is not what the Bank of Japan was doing. And you know what? The people of Japan don't believe the Bank of Japan. That's the most fascinating thing. Isn't that right, Jeff? They didn't act as if they were going to blow past 2%. Yeah, well, the Bank of Japan had been doing those two things simultaneously. They had been what they called expanding the monetary base. And they literally said that in the various press releases, not just associated with this overshooting, this new overshooting policy in September of 2016, but all the way back to QQE in April of 2013, three years beforehand, the Bank of Japan said, we're going to expand the monetary base by creating bank reserves. That's, that's what quantitative easing is. Where it became qualitative easing in, in addition to quantitative easing, this extra Q and QQE was the things that the, the asset classes the Bank of Japan was going to buy. So what the Japanese said was, we're going to buy all sorts of assets. We're going to rate, and the byproduct of buying all these assets from banks in the Japanese banking system was that we're going to raise the level of bank reserves in the banking system, which they called the monetary base. And so for the layperson on the street, they say, oh, the Bank of Japan just said, we're going to buy all sorts of stuff. So we're going to, quote, unquote, support all sorts of markets. There's going to be trillions upon trillions, hundreds of trillions in Japanese yen bank reserves created as a byproduct. How can this stuff not be inflationary, right? The, the Bank of Japan has gone insane. 
Except as we just referenced, you know, more than two and a half years later, they decided, well, this isn't working. We're going to have to try to add a negative interest rate policy. And then another eight months later, further on, now we got to then get into inf uh, inflation overshooting. But for most people, they, you see the bank level of bank reserves rising and you think, well, you know, something's happening. And so a lot of people believe that this must be inflationary, but yet there's never any inflation. And that's really the point when we get into this overshooting is here we are three years later after QQE had begun, and they're still trying to add things to it. Because remember, when QQE was first introduced, this was the most powerful, irresponsible, reckless uh, monetary printing ever conceived since Weimar Germany. And yet, So why are we still tinkering with it year after year after year? And it's, it's a contradiction that central bankers really don't want to get into because it, it, it leads us back to the central conclusion, which is these bank reserves, yes, you can call them base money. Central bankers can say they're base money, but in any effective sense in the private system, they're just inert. They're worthless. They're useless. They don't do anything. They're basically uh, inert tokens that sit there on a, on a balance sheet somewhere. Laundromat tokens, interbank money. And if you're not within that banking system, then maybe you're not interested in using bank reserves. You know, Jeff, the people of Japan didn't react to this because, guess what? They've been in a depression since the 90s, and they've been experiencing radical, unorthodox, monetary, crazy, irrational, irresponsible monetary policy since the late 90s, early 2000s. So 10 years later, here comes another monetary policy yawn. But, but maybe something truly radical could change the mood. And actually, you don't bring this up in your article, but you have previously, is in that period between the negative interest rate policy announcement and then the one in September regarding the overshooting, there were rumors of helicopters. But it seemed like that never happened. Do you think maybe that, why did they back down? Any thoughts that you may have? Could that have radically upset the apple cart? Well, I think from the perspective of a central bank, what central bankers and monetary officials are, are thinking is we want to be able to control whatever it is we do. And so the idea of just a blanket helicopter, I mean, that was thrown around there quite a lot. I mean, I don't really think it was ever seriously considered. It's one of those things that maybe came up in a conversation. And of course, it goes into the official record that, yeah, they talked about it, but I don't believe it was ever seriously considered because... There's really no way to do it. There's no real way to accomplish it. And I think that's why a lot of people are interested in what the Federal Reserve is now doing with their digital accounts and things like that, because they're wondering, oh, maybe central bankers are figuring out a way to solve this helicopter problem, and then they'll just start doing it. But that's not, I mean, that's not really what central banks are. That's not in their DNA. It's not in their modern DNA of what central banks actually want to accomplish, which is to make people think things, not actually do things, because Let's face it, they can't, do it, they can't do much with the monetary system. So in Japan in 2016, it was about how do we enhance our signaling process? And what you just pointed out, Emil, is absolutely correct. The Japanese people is like, eh, another one? I mean, at some point, it just becomes noise. No matter how irresponsible and how, how, you know, how crazy the financial media goes, and you know, the, especially in the financial media, they go gaga over these things as if, they're, they're absolutely tremendously powerful programs when most people are just, they've already tuned it out because, you know, after 15 years or so, it's just like, okay, here comes another one. And, and really, in, in thinking about it that way, here comes another one. You're already ignoring it because you know the last one didn't work. That seems to be the message that financial media never writes about is the fact that this stuff never works. And if you have to keep tinkering with it, after, you know, the biggest thing ever you have to keep tink tinkering with it again and again, year after year. It obviously wasn't the biggest thing ever. It obviously wasn't the thing that you, that you said it was. It just doesn't work. I'll tell you what the Bank of Japan would say here. They would say, Jeff, you're being unfair because when we kicked off QQE, it was right into the teeth of the third euro dollar eruption disorder. And by the way, this one was right off our coast. It was the East Asian euro dollar disorder. But guess what, Jeff? Now we held, our, we held the line and now we're entering into globally synchronized growth. They didn't know it at the time, but we're entering into globally synchronized growth. And that's why we're going to overshoot because we're generating this money 
into an expanding economy. So, Jeff, how did they do reaching 2%, breaking past 2% inflation, and then staying there once globally synchronized growth, the wind was at their back? Well, first of all, let's be specific. They were so confident, or at least they projected so much confidence in September 20, September 2016 when they announced this policy. They didn't say, just say, hey, we're going to let the CPI go above 2% and stay there. They said, we're going to let the core CPI go up above 2% and, and stay there. And what they meant by core CPI was in Japan, uh, food inflation is the most volatile component. So they moved uh, fresh food uh, prices out of the consumer bucket. So they said core inflation, which is CPI less fresh food, that number is going to go above 2% and stay there. And you're right, Emil. They did this in September 2016. Is it underneath all of that? There was the first rumblings of globally synchronized growth that, that came uh, that, that were apparent by uh, 2017. So from this point, you know, you, you would have thought they had everything going for them from September 2016 forward. How could they not? How could this not possibly succeed? Well, when you look at the CPI, especially the CPI less fresh food, they didn't even get halfway. In fact, they only got halfway, 1% inflation in the core CPI in three out of 50 months. They couldn't even, I mean, they couldn't even do half the inflation with everything at their back, with inflation number three and 20 second globally synchronized growth. All of this QQE mania, you know, negative interest rates were still enforced by at that point. I mean, had, the central bank was throwing everything that they could possibly think of, buying every asset class under the sun while they were doing all of this. And they couldn't even get the inflation to halfway what they were, what they were saying is our target, let alone stay, go above that target and stay there for any prolonged period of time. So, you know, rather than enhance the credibility, as the statement always says, as you pointed out, Emil, Japanese people are like, yeah, okay, yeah, this is just more noise. It doesn't work. It never works. Uh, well, for those of you that are hearing it in an echo that were perhaps watching CNBC in late August, this sounds really familiar, especially if you're anywhere in North America, this plan of getting to your targeted inflation rate and going way above it. Well, maybe not way. I'm overdoing it. Okay, but staying above it. We'll talk about that. I'll let Jeff talk about that if he wants to. Jeff, the point where the reason we're bringing all this up is because late Thursday, the 19th, New York time, early Friday, 20th uh, Tokyo time, the Statistics Bureau of Japan announced the core inflation rate year over year, the inflation rate excluding food and energy, excluding food, the month over month numbers. What did we learn? What are the most recent months saying regarding inflation in Japan? Well, this core inflation rate, the CPI less fresh food, was, I believe, minus seven, seven tenths of a percent year over year, which, again, minus deflation. And minus seven tenths is the, the lowest, most deflationary number Japan has seen since before the tsunami in 2011. So almost their worst. Uh, absolute worst inflationary results. So outright deflation in a sustained fashion too since 2011. And it's not just uh, September or October where this deflation showed up. It's actually been pretty consistent since the March contraction globally. So Japan is back into a very serious deflationary episode, which again, the most serious deflationary episode in over a decade. And at the same time, we have to note Bank of Japan is back doing its quote-unquote money printing, expanding the monetary base, and doing so at a rate that it, it had, has never done before. So it's it's going back into the QQE business, creating all these trillions and trillions, hundreds of trillions of bank reserves. I believe they're now just shy of $700 trillion in assets on the Bank of Japan's balance sheet. So closing in on a quadrillion in yen assets, and instead of even the hint of inflation, Japan is deeply and even more deeply entrenched back in deflation again. So we say again, this stuff does not work. It's a signal to people to act. And the people, as you pointed out, Emils, are saying, we've seen this stuff for decades. Why would we even think it is has even the remotest possibility of, of, of being effective? Well, you know what it is, though, Jeff, is uh, Resident Evil is actually a Japanese game. And there's some great scenes in these movies in Japan where the heroine has got a couple pair of katana swords and she's slicing through zombies. It's fabulous. Uh, it's nighttime. It's raining. She's got on a 
great set of clothes, perhaps it's a nightgown, which is how you usually fight zombies. The point I'm trying to make, Jeff, is that the reason they're struggling right now, despite all the money printing, is because there's an infestation, like in Resident Evil. It's the corona, the COVID. Is that what we see in Japan right now? Is that what's holding them back, the economy? No, not at all. I think that's the, that's the point. You know, if you look at Japan, Japan has the lowest incidence of cases and the absolute lowest amount of deaths. I think it's it's about 1,700 total deaths out of a country with 126 million people population. And the Japanese have never, I mean, Japanese are very, very, very much uh, aware of private rights. The Japanese government has never imposed a, uh, a nationwide lockdown or even regional lockdowns. In fact, they've said, hey, hey, take, you know, social distancing, use masks, which are, are, you know, people in Asia use masks much more than people do here. You know, all the precautions take, you know, but if you're non-essential, maybe think about working from home, all that kind of stuff. But they never imposed lockdowns. They never had a surge in cases. They didn't have any kind of uh, massive mortality from it. And so it's not a COVID problem in Japan. And as you pointed out, the zombie, you know, Emil, the zombie analogy, it, it isn't COVID. It isn't yen. It isn't Bank of Japan. It's it's always dollars. Japan is a global uh, global participant in the respect that their their marginal economic activity is derived from how the rest of the world is doing. And so, if the rest of the world is doing very poorly, Japan's got no chance. And it doesn't matter what the Bank of Japan does with QQE because they're not printing money. They're not printing any money that's usable in the real economy. They're printing bank reserves that, the, as we talked about, I believe you know last week or the week before. They're printing these yen bank reserves that Japanese banks yen uses collateral, at least the entryway into collateral, to do dollar swaps. So it always comes back to the dollar. And I think what's, what's really most important about this when we talk about Japan is most people say, okay, yeah, but that's Japan. And the Japanese, they have no idea what they're doing. Obviously, this stuff doesn't work in Japan. But you put this stuff in the hands of the Federal Reserve, that'll definitely work. And that's certainly how the people the Federal Reserve feel. But, you know, you should notice, as what we're talking about here, overshooting. That should sound familiar because what is overshooting? Well, in, in the Federal Reserve's terms, it became a symmetrical inflation target in May of 2018. So a couple of years ago, the Fed already borrowed that aspect of, of Japanese monetary policy where they said, we're going to let inflation go above our, tar our target and remain above our target. And it also sounds like average inflation targeting, which the Federal Reserve unveiled as their brand new policy, uh, 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 you know, underlying strategy in August of this year, where they said the same thing. Again, this overshooting target that didn't work in Japan, that didn't work as a symmetrical inflation target in the, in the Federal Reserve context in 2018, but now it's even deeper. Now we're going to average our inflation target, which is supposed to mean we're going to let inflation go above it and stay above it for an even longer period of time to balance out all those years where we couldn't, where the Federal Reserve couldn't even achieve their inflation target. And it's all just nonsense. And it's not just overshooting. It's not just inflation target. It's QQE. What has the Federal Reserve been doing since March? Essentially, the same thing as Japan did in April of 2013, which was QQE, this expanded monetary base, this expanded uh, you know, asset classes for purchases and all this other stuff. So whatever the Japanese have done and failed at, the Federal Reserve has already copied and adopted it, and they haven't worked yet. So when you say that, you know, okay, we're just going to ignore Japan's experiences, something that we shouldn't pay attention to because it's Japanese, you have to understand that the Federal Federal Reserve has copied the Japanese going back more than a decade. And so the Fed hasn't had any success. The Japanese haven't had any success. So why should we expect all of a sudden that it's going to start working in the way that it was intended? And not even working in the way it is intended. Some people are saying it's going to work too well. It's going to release this inflationary monster that nobody will be able to control when it hasn't worked anywhere. Not just you know Japan, Europe, the United States, all of these things, inflation targets, QQE, monetary, all of it. It's all been tested. It's all been tried all over the world for decades. It doesn't work because it's not what you think it is. Let's take a look, though. Let's see if you're right, Jeff. Let's take a look at Europe, the latest economic data over there. And let's take a look at the United States in part two of episode 37. That's where we're going to go. And I'm going to give the audience a little bit of a hint. Some of the data in one of those two regions is different. Perhaps it's signaling that Jeff is wrong, that it is working somewhere. Decoupling. Is it a euphemistic phrase for divorce? Is it what railway car carriages do? Or is it the United States economy untangling itself 
from the sinking economies of Japan and Europe, grabbing a surfboard and riding the wave of reflation onto a nice beach where they're going to have a Mai Tai or a mojito. Let's find out. We're going to ask Jeff Snyder, head of global research of Alhambra Investments. You can find him on Twitter at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. Jeff, we're going to turn to another article about Japan that'll then segue into Europe and the United States. The first one we're turning to is called Deflation Returns to Japan, Part 2, posted November 20th at the Alhambra Investments blog. Uh, the same day that the inflation figures were released in Part 1 that we were discussing, that's a government measure of the economy. There's a private measure of the economy called the Purchasing Manager Indices, and this asks the manufacturing and service managers and then how they're doing, and then it puts a composite score together. And what did we learn from Jibun Bank about the state, the outlook, actually, the outlook? These are forward-looking indicators of the Japanese economy. Well, the, what the, the uh, purchasing manager index has shown for the, ever since March, even going back before March, and I think that's an important point, too, is that the Japanese economy has been in recession for a long, long time already. And despite the, you know, somewhat of a comeback since March in Japan as elsewhere, it never really got out of that contraction phase, at least in terms of the PMI, it never got above 15. And you can never take the 50 level too literally. But, you know, it was sufficiently below 50, substantially below 50 enough that you would think, okay, Japan's really struggling here. And really struggling here in a way, as we just talked about in part one, it doesn't have as much to do with COVID and the coronavirus. The economy is really struggling and it hasn't, you know, it's come back a bit from the bottom, but it really not come back much at all. And then we come to find out in October, things got a lot worse. You know, these both the service, the service sector more than the manufacturing sector, but both sectors really took a turn for the worse in October. That that's corroborates in a lot of, in a, in a very big sense, the uh, deflationary numbers in Japanese CPI, which says, Demand is not coming back. Uh, producers as well as service providers are having to discount the prices on their goods and services. And the deflationary mindset, which never really left, is now, t is now uh, in into an uh, even higher level of disruption and, and dysfunction. That's right. So these purchasing manager indices are diffusion indexes. And if a score of 50 you could look at it as saying that an equal number of people said the economy was getting better, getting worse, and not changing. So if you're below 50, then you have more people saying, more managers are saying employment prices, orders are getting worse. The services number was 46.7. The previous month, it was 47.7, so one point lower. The composite number was also one point lower. It came in at 47. Manufacturing, not as bad, as you pointed out, 48.3 versus 48.7 in the previous month. The point here I wanted to make, and normally I never say or care what the expectations are, the analyst forecast, unless the analyst forecast is in the wrong direction. And the analyst forecast was for the number to come in at 49.4 for growth. It went the other way, 48.3. Yeah, that's a lot about um, not just Japan, but the rest of the world. The, the world economy, I think, has stumbled uh, significantly since we've been talking about it since June and July. But it may be that the, the things are starting to roll over again, September and into October, and maybe even to, into November, as we've seen in the United States, at least, with jobless claims and things like that. So the rebound that was, that was supposed to have taken place since around May, when you know the economy, uh, global economy, many parts of it started to reopen, that did happen. There was a rebound, but it wasn't a complete rebound. More and more, what we're seeing, especially you know Japan being a, a leading indicator, a bellwether, whatever you want to call it, we're seeing that the rebound kind of stopped, never really got going. It, you know, there was something. It, it wasn't complete. It wasn't fully. You know, there wasn't enough momentum with it. It was just reopening. There was no economic processes with it. Whatever, whatever you want to say. Something kept the rebound from becoming a recovery. The rebound happened, but it stopped way short of recovery. And now that, that, that the more time it goes on where we don't have the completed rebound into recovery, that creates the opportunity for bad things to begin to st start happening again, for negative factors to creep in. 
And that's where you get into not just the recession, because we're already in a recession, but a prolonged recession, which, you know, that's the worst of the worst cases. Prolonged recessions, recessions with no upside, I like to call depressions. For the audience that didn't catch uh, episode 36, David Parkins, our illustrator, put together something fantastic that illustrates exactly what Jeff was just talking about, the difference between rebound, reflation, and recovery. And so he had a, he had a roulette wheel, and normally you've got 36 numbers on there, and they're all equally spaced. But he had this one long section that was rebound. We had the rebound. And that was about 60% of the wheel. Then about 35% of the wheel is reflation. So reflation is that rally back towards the number you were before the recession started. And then a small traditional slot, 5% in size of the whole wheel is recovery, where you can reacquire that pre-recessionary trend. So if the picture is worth a thousand words, David Parkin's illustration for episode 36 is a must-see. Jeff, you were talking about that Japan is reflecting what the whole world is experiencing. And, wouldn't you know it, Monday, November 23rd, we got PMI estimates for the euro area. And they were preliminary, so flash estimates, so it's not final. IHS market produced some numbers for us. Jeff, do you know what they were off the top of your head, or does it not really matter? Just the direction. What did we learn about Europe? The European PMIs were atrocious. <laughs> it doesn't really matter what the exact numbers. I think the, the composite was something like 45, or maybe the service was whatever. Well, there was, there right. was one that was down in around 45, which is, I mean, that's, that's the opposite of what you want to see in a rebound recovery situation. In fact, it was a deep retrenchment. Now, in Europe, you can say, well, yeah, that's that's governments reimposing restrictions and lockdowns, and then that's some of that's true. But we also have to keep in mind that Europe was in a recession like Japan before COVID ever showed up, and it didn't really rebound much after it during, well, during where other places had during the uh, post-March, post-May uh, period, too. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they were already in recession. The economy was already weak. An economy that is weak is going to have trouble rebounding. It's going to have trouble recovering because of all the processes or all the negative factors that are that are forcing it into recession in the first place, especially if those factors have never been significantly or sufficiently dealt with. So the European economy is deeply retrenching as we head closer to the end of this year and into next year, and that's already starting to be re reflected in the Japanese economy. So we have a couple good leading indications that remind us of the way things happened in 2018, leading up to this pre-COVID recession, where we saw in early 2018, right off the bat in 2018, you know, Japan and Germany in particular, suddenly they, this is as if their, their economic recoveries, which was, which were supposed to be, you know, this massively inflationary, accelerating, globally synchronized growth of 2017. Instead, they go into 2018 and immediately are in, uh, Germany's in contraction, as is Japan. So Germany and Japan went first in the 2018-2019 period. And so in some ways, bringing this back to where we started, we're revisiting in 2020 what we already revisited in 2018, which is the idea that maybe the U.S. economy can decouple from everyone else, which is already ironic because decoupling in its original economic sense goes back to uh, the early parts of 2008 when many people said, oh, the U.S. is screwed, maybe the rest of the world can decouple from the U.S. And so it's every time we have these downturns show up in recessions, decoupling always comes up in them, at least in the first parts of them, because the, globally, the global economy, when it experiences a downturn, doesn't do it all at once. It takes you know, different speeds, different variations, all sorts of gradation in, in between. And so what we saw in 2018 was, Europe and Japan went into the downturn first. It took a, you know, another few months further along before the U.S. joined them. And in between that period, everybody was, oh, the U.S. is fine. The U.S. is doing great. The U.S. is, is accelerating. This is a boom, all that stuff. The U.S. is going to decouple from all this, you know, this mysteriously, uh, this mysterious downturn that shows up in 2018. The United States economy will be immune from it because it's so awesome. And decoupling, of course, as it has ever since 2008, always proves to be nothing more than a fantasy. And eventually, the world economy does resynchronize again in whichever direction it's going. Let's put some numbers to it, Jeff. 
we're going to show the PMI scores on a graph now, a historic PMIs for the United States. And that'll help people uh, put some context regarding that the numbers don't always what they mean, don't always mean what you think they mean. If they're at near-term highs or cycle highs, that doesn't mean things are fantastic. And we'll show that on a graph. But yes, the idea is Japan's PMI shrank when people are expecting it to increase. And Europe's PMI is in the 40s. Meanwhile, we've got the US PMIs heading towards 60. That's decoupling. And it's courtesy of the technocrats in the Federal Reserve telling us they're going to go well above 2% inflation. Or yeah, I, I think that's a really good point about PMIs too, is that, you know, when they were first introduced and constructed, the idea was that, you know, going back to the plucking model, unit roots and all the stuff that we've talked about before, that economies just simply go back to where they were. A recession is nothing more than a temporary interruption in what is otherwise a normal economic, pro you know, an unbroken, uh, unbroken trajectory or, or pattern of pot potential. So economies simply go and then, they, you know, they get interrupted and they go back. And so the idea of a PMI in that situation is that, look, we're trying to gauge when these business cycles appear and then when they, you know, the recession or the trough part of the cycle ends. And so a PMI, all it says is that, okay, as you pointed out earlier, it's a diffusion index, which means more people are saying the economy is worsening than they're saying it's getting better. At least there they're, they're are individual situations in the economy. And so we assume that if more people are saying it's worsening than getting better, that's consistent with a normal recession process. And therefore, when that reverses and the PMI goes back above 50, when more people are saying things are getting better than getting worse, we assume that means that we're going to have a recovery. But that's not a valid assumption, as you can see, especially in the manufacturing sector, because we don't. there are periods in history where we, have, we are now seeing we don't get a recovery at all. But yet the PMIs... I get to be the same levels as they had been during periods where, which were recovery. So the PMI doesn't necessarily tell you about recovery. All it says is, are things getting better or getting worse? They don't say recovery, recession. They say, okay, getting worse, getting better. And so a PMI of, say, you know, high 50s into the 60s that we see recently may not, in fact, it probably is not the same thing as we've seen where PMIs have gotten up into the 60s in other periods in history where, where they did develop into something like economic growth because the underlying factors in the economy were very different than they are now. Just people may be thinking, well, that's not fair because if you're above 50, you're growing and that's good. You're moving forward, but it's what we also often talk about. It's nonlinear growth. And if that doesn't actually make sense, there are many kind of moving forwards. There's sprinting, striding, sashaying, and skipping. That's good. But there's also stumbling, slithering, staggering, and slipping. They're all moving forward, but totally different results. And I think yeah, we're in that latter category. We don't care about absolute levels. If, 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 if you know, the level of out manufacturing output is higher than it's ever been today, that doesn't mean what, it's, what it sounds like it means. And it, doesn't mean any, it may not mean anything meaningful. It's not, it may not be a material uh, change in situation. What we care about is economic growth, which is a consistent, a consistent trend in growth, which lasts sustainably over time. And so on the chart that you just showed, which was manufacturing, but you can easily just use, you can use GDP or anything else. What should happen is it can continue, it, the uh, trend should continue moving higher and higher to the right and above at the same pace that it had always been historically. And so even if output is at a record high, but it's nowhere near that prior trend, you are in a contractionary situation. So what the PMI tells you is, is not that we're recovering. What a PMI tells you in that situation where we're, we're way off trend is that, well, right now it's not getting worse. That's all it's saying. It's not saying we're recovering. It's saying at this particular moment in time, the bad situation that we're in isn't getting worse right now. The problem is, as we've often talked about on this show, is that there's not enough money growth in the world. And one of the ultimate, pristine, most desired forms of money in the world is the U.S. Treasury bill. And that's what we're going to discuss in part three, because we're seeing some interesting developments in the U.S. Treasury bill market. Some entities are selling. Might that be a signal of reflation? Not all debt is equal. Some, no, 
Not all dead is equal. Who wrote that, Jeff? Animal Farm, George Orwell. Okay. Not all dead is equal. Some debt is more equal than others. And what I'm talking about here is the U.S. Treasury bill. It has a special place in the monetary order. And we're going to let Jeff Snyder explain it to us. We're going to go over two articles. The first one, Jeff, is called Treasury Auctions Are Anything But Sorry Because They've Never Been Sorry About Solly. This is great. For the audience that hasn't heard this story, this is, I first heard this on your uh, seven-part series with Eric Townsend, Eurodollar University on Macro Voices. I love this story. We're going to be, we're going to find out who Solly is, but first let's talk about auctions and how is the U.S. Treasury debt sold to the public? Well, it's, it's sold to the public through intermediaries. And I think that's, that's really a key point to understand that there's, you know, the government wants to sell the debt to anybody who will buy it, but yet we have to have these primary dealers in place to undertake some of the, the risks of, you know, the government selling that debt so that the, it can be over time sold off to the public in a very orderly fashion. And that's really the point here is the government doesn't want to show up, have to sell its debt and worry about whether or not it can. You can't have this disruption in, in uh, government bond auctions because the government would never be able to dependably uh, borrow what it needs to borrow, which I can already, you know, the bond vigilantes are saying, yeah, good, that's the way it should be. And they're right to a certain extent, but you don't want to, you don't want to have the federal government or any government show up at it. And it's not just governments, you know, mortgage bond auctions, corporate bonds, anything in the primary market, you want to have these, uh, the, the ability to raise credit. You want it, they want that to go smoothly and efficiently as possible. And for that to happen, we have what are, what used to be called anyway, commercial banks or securities firms. Their entire business is to, hey, I'm going to buy your stuff at auction, mark it up, and sell it off over time to the rest of the financial public because I believe there's a, there's a profit in doing so. And we want these, these securities firms to be able to do that because they perform this vital role, this very crucial role that's uh, you know, very key in a modern economy in, 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 the, in the credit system. And so you mentioned them, primary dealers. They hold a special position in the U.S. financial system, or at least but they're not all U.S. banks, but they are banks that have been given the privilege and obligation of doing what with the government? They have to buy the debt or no, they just have to put in a bid and they can bid much higher as in, or much lower. They say, we don't want this. We'll take it for 50 cents. Is, is that right? No, they do have to buy whatever's left over, but there are all sorts of people that, that are allowed to participate in the government auctions. There are indirect bidders, which are foreign, usually foreign governments and foreign uh, overseas central banks that, that you want to have a hold U.S. treasuries of all kinds because they have dollar reserve and they have reserve balances and they like to manage their reserves into investable assets. And they have other reasons as well, as we've talked about you know, on, from time to time. So these are called indirect bidders where they place their bids through either the Federal Reserve Bank of New York or through one of the primary dealers who, who uh, go show up through the electronic treasury process, auction process and uh, bid on their behalf. So there's, there's other bidders. Uh, there's these primary dealers who bid for their own accounts, their house accounts. They're called direct bids. Uh, these banks also submit competitive bids. They submit non-competitive bids, all sorts of things that go on where the, this, this complicated auction process happens that uh, and whatever's left over out of it, the banks need to buy up because that's what gives them their primary dealer status. They have to buy what's left over at auction. I didn't know that. So it's not primary dealers only. It's any serious accredited financial institution can buy with a non-competitive bid. And that's going to be very important in our story. And then the primary dealers are are there to pick up any of the table scraps. But yeah, as you're going to yeah, go ahead. If if you're a hedge fund or if you're you know substantially of sufficient size, you can you can you can sign up to I think it's called TARP or TARP or whatever the uh, treasury the electronic process the electronic auction is, and you can submit non-competitive bids in the increments uh, in increments of five million dollars. Why is do low- we do that, Jeff? We could. I mean, okay. it's a matter of, and, and then you look, a non-competitive bid, all it says is, I want to buy this specific treasury security or auction off. Whatever the, the terms are when the auction is settled, those are the terms I'll pay. 
So whatever the rest of the auction comes up with as a price and their yield and all that stuff, non-competitive bids all say, we'll just buy the treasure. We don't care what the price is. Whatever the auction price is, we're reasonably sure it's not going to be something uh, something really bad or expensive. So, But we're not going to participate in the competitive side of the auction. We just want to buy paper. So there's lots of non-competitive bids that come in, and, and dealers bid in non-competitive bids for their own accounts. But they're limited because of what we're going to we're going to get into in a few minutes of why uh, what's going on in some of these auctions, and so there's lots of non-competitive bids that are submitted, and what's left over after the non-competitive bids, after the indirect non-competitive bids, and all these other things, that's where the actual auction takes place, and it's a Dutch tender where uh, you know primary dealers submit how much they'll buy at what price and all that kind of stuff, and then that's what settles out the final price of the auction. Well, for listeners and uh, viewers that are interested in contributing to the Eurodollar University account, we're going to open up a Patreon account. We're only accepting minimum contributions of $5 million so that we can participate in this process. Jeff, people may be wondering, non-competitive bids, why would you want to do that? You should be in the competitive. You don't want to overpay. Aha, that's when you introduce us to Solly and Paul Moser, and can you tell us why Moser told both Warren Buffett, the king of Omaha, the, what is he, the Oracle of Omaha, and the U.S. government to go stuff themselves repeatedly? Yeah, this is in the early 1990s, so 1990 and 1991, and what he was doing on behalf of Solomon Brothers was he was at sometimes bidding for a hundred percent of what was being auctioned. Now remember this this is back in the early nineties where the you know, yes, people were complaining about the fiscal deficit situation then, but it was nothing like it was today. So, but there, you know, there, there were still billions of dollars of paper being sold. And what what uh Paul Moser was doing on behalf of Salomon Brothers House account was that he was bidding for at times more than 100% of what was being auctioned. Now he didn't always get 100%, but he was basically trying to get everything that was being offered by the government and leaving nothing for anybody else. And then this is back in 1990, 1991, and nobody could figure out what this guy was up to because it didn't seem like there was any any value in um why would you want to corner the market on a treasury auction, right? I mean, because it's, I mean, it's a treasury market. It's bigger than any single auction. There's really no apparent reason for him to be doing this. Now, but not only did Paul Moser do this, after the treasury department caught on to what he was doing, they started to impose position limits. What they said was, okay, we see that you really want this stuff, but you know, it's, we got to let other people get into this auction process too. So we're going to limit you to 35% of any individual security. And after that limit, and I think they even called it the Paul Mosier rule, after that was imposed in 1990 or 1991, I can't remember exactly which year it was, uh, the very next auction, what did he do? He overbid again. Not only did he overbid, he actually put some bids in, in a customer's account and overbid through a customer account. So he kept on doing Love this it. for several auctions to the point where the Treasury Department said, <laughs> you're you're flaunting our rules right in our face. We're going to shut you down entirely. We're going to completely, we're going to revoke uh, Solomon Brothers' the status as a primary dealer. Uh, California Pension Fund said, you know, this is embarrassing. We can't be involved with a firm that will do. I mean, Solomon Brothers brought itself to the brink of ruin to the point that Warren Buffett had to come in and testify before Congress, had to, had to smooth everything over the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve and the OCC and all these bank regulators just to keep Solomon Brothers in business. And what nobody could figure out, except for the, you know, they conducted an extensive government investigation into this thing, but they never really put two and two together. Why was Solomon Brothers doing this? And then it wasn't just Solomon Brothers. Exactly. What they found out is that over in mortgage bond auctions, everybody was doing this. They were overbidding, keep cooking books, putting bids into customer accounts. This auction stuff had gotten so out of hand that everybody wanted, what, what doesn't matter what it was, mortgage bonds from whatever, GSE, government, U.S. Treasuries. There was all sorts of dirty stuff going on in these auction processes. And it wasn't, when you say everybody, the number you list, or at least... You said it was almost everyone. So it was about 90 other Paul Mosers. Maybe we're uh, unfairly uh, pointing him out because it was happening 
by everywhere. And so well, he was, <laughs> what he was doing is particularly egregious. So he deserves it. But yeah, you know, and that's not my number, by the way. That's that's taken directly from mm-hmm. the government report. What they said was, look, there's we after we all this Mosier stuff and Solomon Brothers, we went look we went looking into these auction processes, and not just U.S. Treasury auctions. We looked at agency mortgage bond auctions too. And so we we under pain of of perjury, we made all of these dealers tell us what they were actually doing. And uh, I think it was, was it 98 or 95, 93? There was, you know, so many of these dealers that were bidding at, especially mortgage bonds auctions, had to admit that they were cooking the books and overbidding for all of this auctioned off paper. And so it was a widespread phenomenon in the early 90s that forced regulators to, to, to stop and think, okay, something's really going on here. Now, the point that I try to make is that they never really figured out what it was. <laughs> they, they just figured, oh, this is just a bunch of auction shenanigans and we just need to clean up the auctions. They never, ever put two and two together to figure out why. Was it? Have you put it together for us? What is two and two then? It's on the run liquid assets that were uh, what they were reflecting and what, were, what you know, the demand for them was showing the, the demand, uh, such high demand for auctioned of government bonds and mortgage bonds and agency mortgage bonds, which were the best of best collateral, it spoke to the fact that the repo market was becoming this central focus for how all of modern finance got done. That's really what this was about. This was not about trying to scalp a couple pennies on an auction or even cornering the market on a specific security to initiate some kind of short squeeze or any of the number of traditional financial uh, strategies you might hear about. It was really about getting as much repo of the best repo collateral as you could possibly get because that would that would have all sorts of beneficial balance sheet and securities lending benefits because it reflected the idea that the monetary system was changing to more toward this repo global uh, wholesale euro dollar system where collateral was a vital crucial part of it to the point that dealers all across the entire system were willing to do all sorts of shady, dirty stuff to get their hands on the best quality collateral. And the best quality collateral is the stuff that you can sell just like that. You know what it's priced, and that means it's the on the run, which is just a fancy way of saying the most recently auctioned version, vintage, of this particular maturity. And treasury bills, I suppose we could say they're always effectively on the run because they're so short-term. And we're going to turn to that next. But Jeff, before we do, I think we have an opportunity here because you have a very nice graph that shows the high bid, the median bid, and the low bid. And I think this would be a good place to make the point that bond yields don't necessarily, that what is, what is that we always say? Bond yields have nowhere to go but up. And if that was true, then we would see the high bids much higher, right? Instead of what we see is the that there are people bidding very strongly to get a hold of this collateral. I'm going to pull up the graph and you yeah. you help people better understand what I was trying to say. Yeah, it's it's interest rates have nowhere to go but up because combination of a couple things. It's usually number one, inflation's coming. The Fed's printed too much money. We we already talked about that. And then number two, something that we heard over the last couple of years in particular was the idea that there were too many treasuries. The federal government has gone too far. The, the, the primary dealer system cannot absorb all of the, uh, the uh, government debt that's been uh, auctioned off. And therefore, that's another primary factor that's going to push bond yields always you know, through the roof, uh, higher, 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 higher. And part of the reason was because of the auction process, right? As we stated before, what happens is the primary dealers are obligated to buy treasuries that aren't sold through non-competitive bids or to indirect bidders. And so if indirect bidders in particular, as the argument goes, these foreign institutions aren't, aren't showing up as much at auction, that falls even more onto the primary dealers into the uh, supposedly straining their capacities. And therefore, you know, you would expect if they're getting stuck with this, these uh, treasuries at auction that they don't really want, you would see that in the auction prices. You would see the competitive bids the high, the auction high at each, uh, each auction process, you would expect that to go up and up and up because dealers would have to be compensated for what they don't want. That's the part that people always miss is that, yes, dealers are obligated to buy what's being sold by the government, but there's no, there's no requirement at what price. 
And so if it was a problem for dealers to absorb all of these treasuries, that would be reflected because we would see dealers saying, this is too much. I don't want this. I, you got to pay me more to take this off your hands, government. And we never see that. In fact, in some cases, as you can see, especially earlier this year, in March and April in particular, you see the auction high yields that are below the market price or the market yield in the secondary market, which are dealers saying, we want so much of this stuff. And you know the non-competitive bids have left us with so few, we're going to overpay. And so over the last couple of years, as we've been as we've been told that there's too much debt out there, that the government's selling too much debt, the auction prices and the way these have gone off, especially the the low yields, what we've seen is that the dealers are more than happy to buy what's left over. And in some cases, they're submitting extreme levels of competitive non-competitive bids to make sure they get more than they or get as much as they can possibly get. And Jeff, so for our audience that uh, is listening via podcast, what we see is uh, three different tenors, U.S. treasuries. We see the yield over time, and then you overlay lay that with three lines, the high yield, the median yield, and the low yield. And I think anyone that's watching this right now notices that the one, the big difference here is the low yield, the high yield, the median yield, and the actual go con constant maturity uh, rate that we see on our, in our newspapers, those are all overlaid each other. Perfect. But then you point out these low yields, we see chasms. And then you point out extreme collateral shortages. Is this a, a useful, consistent measure for us to, because it's so hard to look into the shadows of the euro dollar system. Is this somewhere that you turn to and if you see the low yield really low, is that, does that alert you that mm, something's wrong? I don't expect to see things fixing themselves until this normalizes. Yeah, it is an indication. It's, it's, it's never an indication you want to take it by itself. It's something you always want to corroborate. As we keep saying, you know, the, these, it's whether or not this fits into what everything else is saying, and usually it does. But in this case, yes, it's, it, what it's showing is that there are times when there is such strong demand for these on-the-run uh, longer-term bonds and notes what is what, what what we must take away from that is that primary dealers are so they hey I want this paper I've submitted non-competitive bids but I have limits I uh, have to obey for those so in this competitive stuff I'm just gonna you know it's like bidding one dollar and the price is right right it's, it's it's making sure that I'm going to get as much paper as I possibly can whatever the position limit is in the competitive bid I'm just gonna bid down to zero to make sure that I get these treasuries in my possession. And so it's an indication. And again, this is not a huge level. I mean, the auction low yield is only 5% of competitive bids that are submitted, 5% of the, the accepted bids that are submitted. So it's not a, it's not an overwhelming you know, uh, indication of everybody's piling in and paying whatever, but it does indicate, hey, there are people out there, there are dealers out there that are willing to pay extreme low, low prices or extreme high prices for these uh, high prices, low yields, for these these auction securities for some kind of reasons and it's not you know it's not because they're they're expecting something to happen with the federal reserve or something like that they're doing it because there's a utility and value in their holding these papers or these uh, securities in their house account jeff would it be fair to say that once the economy is rip roaring again we wouldn't be surprised to see this reverse and see the auction high yields spike above i don't think you will see the auction high yield spike above that's really about demand from dealers i think what you would see in reflation as we saw in 2017 you see the market secondary market nominal yields up and the dealers in the auctions will normalize their behavior to what's happening in the secondary markets because that's what dealers do right that's the whole point they're saying okay the government wants to sell x we think the the public wants to buy that amount, but what it, what price? And so the dealers are intermediating this primary market and the secondary market. And so they're you know unless there really is a major problem in the dealer demand, they they're getting too much paper they don't want to hold because they don't believe they can sell it to the public because that's the last resort, right? If you don't have any use for this the securities on your own balance sheet, then it, I can sell it to the public because there's there's people who are willing to buy it. And so if you think, okay, these, 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 uh, these treasuries are too much of a problem on my own balance sheet, I don't think I can sell them to the public, then you would expect the high yields at these auctions to creep up 
to compensate dealers for getting stuck with stuff they don't want. And so when we overlay the auction prices and the auction yields with the secondary market and seeing how they're in harmony, what that says is that at the very least, if the dealers don't want the treasury securities, they know they're absolutely perfectly assured that they can sell them to the public at a reasonable right, reasonable price. They don't have to worry about getting stuck with what they don't want because that's always their last resort. And so there can't be too many treasuries, either the public or the dealers want them. And in truth, as we see, is, is that the auction low yield is the dealers want these just as much as the financial public does. Well, recently, Steve Van Meter uh, who you've been interviewed on Real Vision, has his own great, fantastic YouTube channel that I recommend everyone check out, Steve Van Meter. He pointed out that there was some selling taking place in what I had earlier referred to as always effectively on-the-run treasury bills because they're so short-term, less than one year. And Jeff, you took a look at that. And if the audience wants to follow along, they can in an article called just who is and who is not selling T-bills. That was posted on October, no, November 25th. Jeff, what did you see? Can you walk us through what you found? Yeah, the key word is selling, right? And that's, I think that's what triggers people's interest. Okay, if you think, okay, remember this is tick data. So we're talking about foreign financials, foreign central banks, foreign banks, whatever, non-banks, uh, just the foreign financial sector. And so if they're selling treasury bills, you have to think, okay, why are they selling treasury bills? Do they believe that you know, the, the short end of the curve is going to rise? Is, is there something going on there? And that's really the, the idea is, okay, are, are we talking about foreigners selling treasury bills or is there something else going on in the bill market? Because as you look at the tick data, that's exactly what did happen. Whether we call it selling or not, that's, that's what's open to interpretation. The tick data shows that in July and then again in September – both the private side as well as the official sector, the, the FOIs and, or FEMAs, whatever you want to call them, there was a significant amount of net, de net decline in bill holdings, especially in September. I think it was about $30.3 net in uh, lower in gross holdings. And that compared with uh, July, where it was um, the private side of the foreign sector that had been disposing of treasury bills in a substantial amount. So there's, there's something going on, and you can see how that contrasts with earlier this year, especially in April, May, and June, where these same foreigners were buying treasury bills or at least absorbing treasury bills as if, you know, as if they couldn't get enough of them. In fact, in the month of, uh, I believe it was April, the private, the private side of the foreign market were bought more than $100 billion in bills in a single month. So it was a massive amount of buying. And so, you know, easy correlation, right? That was the worst condition. So if, if they're absorbing bills, maybe that's bad things. And if they're starting to sell bills, does that mean things are getting back to normal? And what you did is you went and you asked the Treasury, you asked Mr. Mnuchin, hey, what's going on with the vintages and the tenors that you were issuing? And that's what you show in the next graph is that perhaps it's not so much selling as a rebalancing or simply an unavailability of bills? Yeah, and we have to keep in mind the other side of this, which is bill supply, right? In fact, you know, the government does what the government always does. It has a handbook that it follows in emergency situations. And from time memorial, the, the Treasury Department has done exactly this thing. When, it, when faced and when confronted with an unexpected and unexpectedly large uh, fiscal shortage, they absorb that deficit, that, that unexpected deficit, by issuing bills, the shortest-term debt, because they're reasonably assured, because bills are monetary equivalents in many places and many uses, they're reasonably sure that they can, they can sell that debt, and they did. In fact, they didn't need the Federal, the Federal Reserve's assistance either. Almost, in fact, uh, QE6, none of it was bills. I, very little of it, maybe none of it. And so you most make of that very, bills... Make, that's a very important point. Yeah, the, the, it wasn't. This wasn't QE. This was the private market, and especially the foreign private market, saying, "Well, you guys, you got trillions of bills to sell. We'll take it." And so the private, the private financial system, both domestic and, and foreign, easily bought up all those bills. But from the Treasury Department's perspective, that's all they. I mean, that's what you do. You, you issue the shortest term debt, or shortest term debt, and then over time, 
you expect, unless you're going to get a windfall of tax revenue, which we obviously know is not mm. the case, over time, you convert that short-term debt into longer-term debt, and, and especially if, if uh, interest rates are very favorable in your direction. And that's exactly what Steven Mnuchin at the Treasury Department did. Right at the end of June, they started to issue fewer bills and started to uh, and began to issue more longer-term notes and bonds. And so when we're looking at uh, this, particularly what the foreign sector might be doing with treasury bills, we say we put this together, what the treasury department is doing as far as supply, and maybe it wasn't selling in July and September and for a foreigner selling bills. Maybe it was just the fact that they had fewer bills to buy. So as these short term, especially the four week and eight week, which are the ones that have been reduced the most, as those have come due, they are not rolled over at the same at the same levels that they had been in April, May, and June. So there were fewer of them for foreigners to purchase. So it wasn't necessarily that foreigners were selling bills. They just they just didn't have any bills to buy. And so in some ways, it was a forced rotation into other other areas of the treasury market. Jeff, we agreed beforehand that this would be a quick, short, brief show. And I think it's our longest one we've ever done. But it flew by for me. I loved it. I have nothing further to add. Do you have anything else to uh, share with the audience? Anything that I didn't ask you that's very important? I don't think, you know, hey, we'll, if, if there is, we'll get make sure we cover it next week because uh, there's always enough interesting things to talk about. Even, uh, you know, as, as we look forward to uh, maybe some more positive days ahead, we give thanks and we, we think about things that are good. And, you know, despite all the things that are bad, you know, I, I hope that we'll have more good things to talk about in the, in the weeks ahead. Very well said, Jeff. And I will talk to you next week. All right. Take care, Emil.